looking at Jeremiah 20 tonight with an introduction to a new character in the book of Jeremiah, a character who appears and disappears between the boundaries of verse 1 and verse 18. Pasher ben Immer is not to be confused with Pasher ben Malchiah, who is in verse 1 of chapter 21 and will reappear in chapter 38, verse 1. There are two Pashers in the book of Jeremiah. They are not to be confused. Uh, This is, shall we say, the most intriguing of the two. I've suggested a structural paradigm for the sequencing of the chapter. Uh, You can look at that uh, for your own interest. I'm not going to concentrate it on in in I'm not going to concentrate it on on it in detail. But I do want to uh, pick up the narrative thread with the question, is there any connection with chapter 20 to what precedes it? And if so, what is that connection? First verse of chapter 20, that uh, when Pasher heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Okay. In the last verse, the previous chapter, it said that uh, Jeremiah was doing just that. Very good. All right. So uh, one observation is that the uh, words that uh, Pasher heard, and in the New American Standard, the phrase which translated these things is actually literally these words. It would actually have been better to translate it that way, as we'll see in a moment. He is aware, then, of the events of the preceding chapter, at least of the event of chapter 15. But is there any other suggestion as to how he would have heard the words of Jeremiah? All right, you have a clue in your outline. You'll take the back to chapter 19, verse 1. And Terry, if you've gotten back to that first verse of chapter 19, would you read it for us? Senior priests. Who might that be? Who might be one of the senior priests? Pasher. Yes. Notice that he is called a priest and a chief officer of the house of the Lord, which means he's not only an officer, he's kind of like the uh, business manager. He's the one who administers the temple. He's in charge of the precinct. So it is quite possible that he went along with those priests who went down to the potter's shop and uh, eventually went to the Valley of Hinnom to hear uh, Jeremiah smash the jar, hear Jeremiah speak and smash the jar, underscoring the uh, future destruction of Jerusalem symbolized in that act. But it is also possible that he uh, was not present 
with that group and uh, heard Jeremiah when he stood in the court of the Lord's house. And you'll notice in verse 14 of chapter 19 that uh, duplication of the house of the Lord, which is uh, present in 1914 and 20 verse 1. <clears throat> Can't be dogmatic then about uh, either venue, but it is possible that he was present in one or the other. Now, there is a hook pattern which also uh, concatenates or or croquets, crochets rather, this. chapter that ends with verse 15 of chapter 19 and the chapter which opens with verse 1 of chapter 20, which once again underscores the narrative thread or the continuous concatenation of the narrative drama. And the hook pattern is contained in the word words in verse 15 of chapter 19, and as I've indicated to you, the Hebrew literally reads in verse 1 of chapter 20, these words. Now you will notice that in verse 15 of the 19th chapter, Jeremiah is told to prophesy that he is going to bring calamity upon uh, Judah and Jerusalem because they have not listened or not given heed to my words. And chapter 20 follows upon that statement as if to give us what? A living example of someone who did not give heed or did not listen to God's word. So there's an irony there in that when Pasher in verse 1 of chapter 20 is said to have heard the words of the prophet Jeremiah, he is one who at the end of chapter 19 verse 15 does not give heed to the words. Well, how can you hear the words and not give heed to the words? Well, of course, it's not that he didn't hear them go into his uh, auditory canal and they reached his brain But uh, he didn't hear them in the sense that he stiffened his neck, hardened his heart against the message. And we know that he does that because of his action with respect to Jeremiah. So here is an individual. Here is a priest. Here is a priest of the temple of the Lord. Here is someone who is ministering at the temple and the altar of God who does not hear the word of God as it comes through his servant Jeremiah. Because Pasher thinks Jeremiah is what? What does Pasher think of Jeremiah? He doesn't like him because he thinks he's a what? He's a false prophet. Yes, he believes that Jeremiah is a false prophet. Well, then who's the true prophet, Ben? Well, in this case, who, who in particular? Notice verse 6. Verse 6 of chapter 20. 
Pasher himself, he regards himself as a true prophet. Okay, now the Lord indicates through Jeremiah in that sixth verse that he's not a true prophet, he's a false prophet. But nonetheless, you understand the antagonism, <clears throat> the antagonism which leads to the uh, uh, humiliation of Jeremiah here is an antagonism between a person who thinks he's a true prophet when God labels him a false prophet. And the reverse is that he regards the true prophet as a false prophet. So the drama here is a reverse of role, a flip of the mirror parody. And that's one of the reasons the narrative is here. It's one of the reasons that this story is retained. It's not the only reason, but it is one reason. All right, now what does Pasher do? Mary Lou, what does Pasher do to Jeremiah? In verse 2, what does he do to him? He gave him a beating, and what else did he do? He put him in stocks, all right? So, notice that this is the latest incident in a crescendo of violence against Jeremiah. We began with the plot against his life from his own village, the men of Anathoth, in chapter 11, verse 21. And not only was it the men of his hometown, the men of his native village, but it was also who else? Art? Ben? Who else was involved in that plot? Lita? His own family, particularly his brothers and those of his father's household. So the members of his own relatives were also present in that. That's 12 verse 6. And last week we noticed in verse 18 of chapter 18... There's another group of those who oppose Jeremiah, namely those who heard him in verse 11 of chapter 18, those who heard him prophesy uh, at the occasion of going to the potter's house initially and uh, devising plans as the New American Standard, that is contriving a plot against Jeremiah. So here with Pasher beating him and putting him in stocks, here we have the first act of physical violence against the person of the prophet Jeremiah. This is the first occasion in which any of this spiraling, ascending paradigm of violence, this crescendo of violence, has actually come to bodily harm in uh, Jeremiah's case. Why? Why would Pasher beat him? And why would he put him away in stocks overnight? Lisa? To silence him, very good. Why does he want to silence him? Because he didn't like what he was prophesying. Yes, what is he prophesying that Pasher doesn't like? He doesn't, he doesn't like doom. All right, that's good. In other words, 
Pasher thinks that Jeremiah is a optimist or a pessimist. He's a pessimist. He regards Jeremiah as a pessimist. So he wants to silence that pessimism. We don't want pessimists running around and talking about gloom and doom. That discourages people. That's not the way forward. That's just, uh, that just gets people discouraged. All right. Well, uh, what else did uh, Pasher think about Jeremiah? He's prophesying gloom and doom. And how's that gloom and doom going to come about? Art? How's that calamity going to fall? Scott? It's going to fall on Pastor himself, too. Well, no. I mean, Jeremiah is doing what? Jeremiah is prophesying. He's prophesying calamity. Verse 15, chapter 19. How's this calamity going to arrive? How's it going to arrive? Through the Gentiles? Through whom? Through, through Babylon. What are they going to do? They're going to, they're going to bring Big Bird or something along? They're going to raise the city. They're going to wage war. They're going to bring war on Jerusalem, right? Okay, so what does Pasher think of Jeremiah? He's a warmonger. All you do is talk about war and bloody death and armies surrounding Jerusalem. We don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear that kind of pessimism. We've got a, we've got a broad world vision. All right, so he's a warmonger. He's a pacifist. And obviously... If you think that Judah and Jerusalem are going to face calamity and collapse, then you're a defeatist. You don't have an optimistic view of the future in terms of the success of our program here in the capital and in the nation. And finally, one more thing that Pasher doesn't like is he doesn't like him sounding the alarm, ringing the clarion bell of saber-rattling other nations. No, 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 no. That is not part of our program. All right, so Pasher is an individual who is antagonistically and diametrically opposed to what Jeremiah is saying on the basis of religious policy, on the basis of political policy, on the basis of economic policy, on the basis of social policy, on the basis of international policy. He doesn't like Jeremiah because he doesn't go along with the program. And so he labels him a false prophet who is the false priest and false prophet himself. Now, we know that Pasher is a false prophet from verse six of this chapter. But we also know that he's a false priest because the two go hand in glove. If he's prophesying falsely, then he's officiating in the temple falsely, keeping in mind that the temple is corrupted, particularly during the reign of King Jehoiakim with idolatry. They've even erected statutes and altars to Baal in the temple of the Lord. Which brings us to the meaning of the name Pasher. It is not a Hebrew name. It is an Egyptian name. 
It means portion of Horus or perhaps son of Horus. And it raises the question, who is Horus? All right. Uh, how many of you know anything about Egyptian theology? All right. Mr. Sanborn says he knows a little bit of uh, Egyptian theology. So who is Horus, Professor Sanborn? That's the part I don't remember. I, I know about Isis and Osiris. That's he knows about Isis and Osiris. It's in the same group. So what, what did you just name? I named uh, the goddess Isis and her husband Osiris. And Isis is basically, uh, you know, Osiris is torn to bits and uh, scattered to the winds or something. And Osiris, or Isis, uh, helps gather his bits together so that he's raised from the dead, supposedly. Put him back together again. All right, so these are the gods. Uh, he just named two of the gods of Egypt. And Horus is a god of Egypt. The Egyptians had hundreds of gods. They even had a beetle god called the scarab or the dung beetle. They worshipped it. And they've got beautiful scarab turquoise and uh, uh, emerald uh, uh, cartouches that have been discovered and have been found in the tombs of the pharaohs. All right. Well, Horus is an Egyptian god. Kind of an Egyptian god. What's he look like? He has the head of a hawk and he has the body of an armed warrior. And go on the internet and set your browser to Horus and you'll get up some very gorgeous pictures, many of which have come been lifted off the pyramids. So uh, quite an impressive looking uh, uh, half half bird, half human god. Uh, and because he dressed like a warrior, he is associated with war in Egyptian theology. All right, Pasher with an Egyptian name, which suggests loyalty to an Egyptian god, perhaps even something that he has introduced into the syncretism of Jewish idolatry at this period. Perhaps we can't prove it, but nonetheless, it's a tantalizing thought because of the meaning of his name. Does this also suggest some kind of loyalty on Pasher's part. Is Pasher pro fill in the blank? Pro Egyptian, which would mean he's anti what? He's anti Babylonian. All right, now we've talked about this polarization before, and we need to review the political context, which may be behind some of the identity of Pasher and what he is promoting in this particular instance. In other words, why he is so hostile to Jeremiah, because Jeremiah is pro-Babylonian and Pasher is anti-Babylonian, which would mean that Jeremiah is anti-Egyptian while Pasher is pro-Egyptian. So there's a large political context here, which also may underscore the religious Context or the religious tension. All right, so that takes us back to 609, 605 BC. All right, that date, 609, is a transition date. What happened in 609 BC? A king of Judah 
was killed. And who was that king, Scott? No, it is not Jehoiakim. Who is the king that was killed? He was killed at Megiddo. Josiah was killed at Megiddo. Who killed him, Ben? Uh, the Egyptian king. The Egyptian army and their king. And who was the king? Uh, Nico. Nico. Very good. Pharaoh Nico in 609 comes up through Palestine on his way. Where is he going? Why is he passing through Palestine? He's going up to, not to Babylon. Yes, where did Abraham come when he first stopped? Where did Abraham stop? Scott? Haran. Haran, yes, he stopped at Haran. And here is Nico over a thousand years later stopping at Haran. He's on his way to Haran. And why is he going there? Ben, you were doing well. Why is Nico going to Haran? He must to meet up with Nebuchadnezzar. Well, he's going to go against Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to actually going to go against Nabopolassar, Nebuchadnezzar's father. But uh, who who does he join there? He's going to fight the Babylonians, but he's going to make an alliance or coalition with somebody else. Lisa, the Assyrians. What's left of the Assyrian Empire? Remember that in 612, three years before 609. In 612, the Babylonians and the Medes had, had conquered Nineveh and burned Nineveh to the ground. That was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. That was the end of the Assyrian Empire. But a small remnant of that uh, Assyrian nobility fled to Haran, and they established an Assyrian Empire in exile. And consequently, Nico goes up to reinforce this Assyrian empire in exile in an attempt to stop the advance of Babylon. He doesn't want Babylon to start to come down the littoral of the Palestinian coast because he knows if they do that, he's got no buffer left. So he wants to keep a, 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 a space between Egypt and the Fertile Crescent, between Egypt and Carchemish or Haran on the Orontes. All right, so that's the reason he's going up in 609. What happens to him, Ben? He gets rousted. He gets rousted, right. And he retreats back through Palestine. And as he goes back, what does he do? Who was the successor king to Josiah? When Josiah died, what did the Jews do? Not Jehoiakim, not yet. Yes, this king only lasts three months in the time it takes Nico to go up and get chased back down. And who is that one who uh, reigns for but three months? The son of Josiah. Okay, his name is Jehoahaz. His other name is Shalom. Actually, when we get to chapter 22 of Jeremiah, we'll take a look at a more a detailed discussion of Shalom's career. All right, so... On his way back to Egypt, Nico removes Jehoahaz or Shalom from the throne and he puts in his place, Ben, Jehoiakim. He replaces him with Jehoiakim. Now, why did he do that? Why did Nico do that? Why did Nico dethrone the one and enthrone the other? He didn't like the, he didn't like the cut of Jehoahaz's hair. He didn't like the way he trimmed the tassels on his robe. Mm, well, you need to think a little more deeply. 
This is a political move. Okay, so think of it in terms of a political move. I'll give you a, Art? I'll give you a vague answer. Somehow he realizes that Jehoiakim is going to be more loyal to him. Well, at least he hopes so, correct? All right, so he removes them. Why? He removes Jehoahaz. Why? Art? Because he wants his own puppet on the throne, right? He wants somebody he can control. He thinks he can control Jehoiakim better than he can control Jehoahaz. At least with Jehoiakim, he doesn't have to worry about the young pup, so to speak. All right, so this is an act of political uh, 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 tyranny because Nico wants Judah in his back pocket. And he wants a man on the throne that he thinks he can keep in his back pocket. And from 609 to 605, he does keep Judah in his back pocket. Now we turn to Jeremiah 46, verse 2. And when somebody has it, please go ahead and read it. Jeremiah 46, verse 2. To Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh, Nico, king of Egypt, which was by the Euphrates River at Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Thank you, Ben. All right, now notice. Nico goes up to the Euphrates to Carchemish, and there he meets Nebuchadnezzar and is defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. What would the fourth year of Jehoiakim be? Art? 605 BC. BC. All right, so this is the second time that Nico goes up to Carchemish or up to that region. He went up in 609. He goes up again in 605. Why does he go up in 605? This time he's not going to meet the remnant of Assyria. This time he's going on his own. This time there's no coalition. This time it's Egypt against Babylon. He's going for the same reason he went the first time. The first time he had the option of getting an an additional benefit or or perk out of this, namely he would have a little bit of the remnant of Assyria. He's not going to have the benefit of that now. That was completely destroyed in 609, but he knows that if he doesn't stop Nebuchadnezzar's advance, He's going to curl his way down across the Palestinian littoral, and he's going to be on the border of Egypt at the river of Egypt at the border of the Sinai Peninsula. All right. So Nico goes up to try to stop him one more time. He fails, as this verse tells you. In 605, Nebuchadnezzar defeats Nico. What does Nebuchadnezzar then do in 605? After Nico is defeated, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He chases him. Where does he chase him? He pursues him down into Palestine. And on his way through Palestine, what does he do? He lays siege to Jerusalem, the first siege by Babylon of Jerusalem. And in that siege, who does he capture? Who does he take off to Babylonian captivity? Art, who does he capture? Derry, who does he capture? Daniel. Daniel and? Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All right, so here is this verse, Jeremiah 46.2 sets the scene 
for the first invasion of Jerusalem. In fact, this verse in Jeremiah 46 is very important to understanding the first verse of the book of Daniel, which I think some of you have been hearing something about. Okay. All right. Now, this, this book does happen to explain itself back and forth, you see. All right. 605, Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem. And now, who controls Palestine? Babylon. So we have a shift, don't we? We have, in 605, the transition from Egyptian control of Palestine, Egyptian control of Jerusalem, to Babylonian control of Jerusalem. Do you think that there were people who forgot those golden days of Egyptian control? Or at least control by Egypt that they liked? Not on your life. There were a group in Jerusalem, perhaps Pasher was a member of them, who were a pro-Egyptian faction. And they grated under the oversight of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And they bided their time waiting for a day in which they could throw off the yoke of Babylon. <clears throat> Second Kings chapter 24, verse 7. And when somebody gets it, please just read it out. Second Kings 24, verse 7. from his own country again because the king of Babylon had taken all his territory from the wadi of Egypt to the Euphrates River. All right, and what is in verse 6 there? If you read verse 6 for us, Scott. Jehoiakim rested with his fathers and Jehoiachin, his son, succeeded him as king. All right, so this is a verse which concludes the career of King Jehoiakim. And when does King Jehoiakim die? <clears throat> Do you look at your outline? 598-97, all right? And what do you associate, according to that verse, 2 Kings 24-7, what do you associate with the death of Jehoiakim and Nebuchadnezzar in 598-97 B.C.? Scott? Second siege of Jerusalem. That is the second siege of Jerusalem. And who is carried away during the second siege of Jerusalem? Lots of people, but prominent persons. Scott? I thought one of the kings was carried off. Yes, who is it? He's named there in that verse. I thought it was Jehoiakim. It is Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim who is carried off. He goes out, in fact, and surrenders to Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps to stave off a bloodbath, he and, his, he and his mother go out and present themselves to Nebuchadnezzar in 597. After Jehoiakim has died, and also Ezekiel is carried away during this second siege. Those are the two prominent individuals. All right, now going back to the siege itself and the fact that Jehoiakim is dead. Why was Jehoiakim killed? He wasn't killed by the Babylonians. Is there a connection, as you look at, Jer at 2 Kings 24, 6 and 7, is there a connection between the death of Jehoiakim and the Egyptian retreat, the Egyptian defeat, the Egyptian 
driven, Dritsum's driven back by Nebuchadnezzar. Is there a connection? I think there is. I think that's one of the reasons, as we pointed out several weeks ago, that Jehoiakim's body was thrown out and given the burial of a donkey. He was thrown out like a dead dog. He was thrown out because he may have been assassinated. Assassinated because there was a group of people in Jerusalem who wanted to betray Nebuchadnezzar. And Jehoiakim had tried it once before. Notice verse 1 of 2 Kings 24. He had become Nebuchadnezzar's servant for three years and then he rebelled against him. That is a rebellion that occurred in 601. And Nebuchadnezzar marched out against the Philistines in that campaign. Uh, We don't know anything about him specifying Jerusalem in that incident, but nonetheless we know he was in the West in 601. So Jehoiakim had tried it once before. Why would he try to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar? Who would he be inclined to team up with? Who had he teamed up with from 609 to 605? Egypt. Notice once again then, the connection of Egypt and its uh, attempt to intervene in the uh, politics and in the affairs of Judah in verse 7 of 2 Kings 24, a strong suggestion that there is a pro-Egyptian faction in Jerusalem and that, in fact, Jehoiakim may have returned to his sympathies to be under the aegis of Egypt and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar for the second time. And Nebuchadnezzar came only before he got to Jerusalem. Jehoiakim had been assassinated and thrown out, his body thrown over the wall as if as a peace offering to Nebuchadnezzar. The Egyptians being involved in this suggests that Jehoiakim had persuaded the Egyptian army to come to his defense and had therefore been playing betrayal footsie or traitor footsie to his overlord and suzerain Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon. All right, this means then that in 598-97, Judah is attempting to transition from Babylon to Egypt. Notice from 609 to 605, Judah is transitioning from Egypt to Babylon. 597, Judah is attempting to reverse that and to transition from Babylon to Egypt. Is Pasher involved in this? Is this portion of Horus? Is this man with the name of an Egyptian god? Is he a pro-Egyptian fifth column within the nation of Judah, serving within the temple as a chief administrator, which gives him a tremendous amount of political power? Is that what Pasher is involved in doing? And therefore, he doesn't want to hear anything from Jeremiah about the coming of Babylon, about the calamity of a Babylonian captivity and siege, etc., etc. He wants to silence him, as Lisa suggested. He wants to shut his mouth. He wants to not have anybody trouble the agenda and the narrative that coming out of the capital city. All right. <clears throat> Uh, This is an attempt to make sense out of why the Pasher narrative or the Pasher story is here in the book of Jeremiah. It places it in the context of the broader international political situation. And as a result, you understand that this is not just a mere incident between Jeremiah and Pasher. This is an incident that has international political and religious overtones. 
It is extremely significant. And the abuse of Jeremiah is extremely significant in its own place. Because, of course, we're talking about the abuse of God's messenger and the program that God's messenger had laid out for the nation. All right, now, Pasher beats Jeremiah. There's a passage in Deuteronomy 25. If you'll turn back to that, the first person to find Deuteronomy 25, 3, once again, when you find it, if you'll read it out. But you must not give him more than 40 lashes. If he is flogged more than that, your brother will be degraded in your eyes. All right, here is a passage which suggests that a man may be beaten after being judged in the court, verse 1 of Deuteronomy 25. And if he deserves a beating, he may be beaten up to 40 times, 40 lashes. But he cannot be beaten with more than 40 lashes. He cannot be struck more than 40 times. Is that one of the reasons that Pasher has him beaten? And this beating is undoubtedly a flogging or a whipping. We're not sure. We're not told. But certainly would fit the paradigm, namely that Pasher believed that Jeremiah was a wicked person and he had judged him worthy of being beaten or being flogged. Turn then to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. And once again, the first person that has the passage, if they'll read it out. 2 Corinthians 11, 24. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. All right, the Apostle Paul says that five times the Jews administered 39 lashes to him. Deuteronomy 25 says 40 lashes. The Apostle receives 40 minus one. Why? They didn't want to come close to breaking the law. Very good. This is the uh, punishment of the synagogue. And the punishment of the Jewish synagogue is that they uh, were uh, horrified at the thought that they would go beyond the law. And so they subtracted one from the requirement in Deuteronomy 25 and said, we will only give 39. That way, if we happen to make a mistake and give one more, then we still only gave 40. So they were going to sin on the side of of, uh, of shorting it rather than over going over the limit. All right, 39 times Paul is lashed with a scourge whip embedded with pieces of metal, pieces of bone, which means that 39 times Paul's flesh was shredded Add it up. 195 lashes. This man was made of stern stuff. All right. Now, I called it the synagogue scourging. It was administered by the Jewish synagogues, which means that when Paul mentions it here in 2 Corinthians 11, he's talking about the opposition he had run into when he tried to preach in the synagogues. 
Why would they give him the, the thrashing and the lashing? Because they regarded him as a blasphemer. And so they would take him out and flog him. <clears throat> it didn't stop him, obviously. He went back and still preached in the synagogues because he receives <clears throat> the lashes five times. But it is the so-called lash of the synagogue. Any questions so far? All right, we come now to the stocks. Why put Jeremiah in the stocks? You scourge him, you flog him, you whip him, you lash him, you bloody his back, if not his face and other parts of his anatomy, and then you put him in stocks. Why do you do that? Make a mockery of him. You do that to humiliate him. You do that to make a public display of him, to expose him to public shame. By the time the covered wagons came west, stocks disappeared from American punishment for the most part. And so you can't find any stocks still standing here in the west. But you can if you go east. You can find them in New England. You can find them in Pennsylvania. You can find them preserved. And you can find them in England and in places of Europe. What did the stocks do? Yes, they exposed you to shame, mockery, and insult. But what did they do to you? Terry? Did you ever put your hands in one? Did you ever put your head in one? Go ahead. I didn't, but uh, the little commentary made a comment about uh, twisting uh, the muscles and, and making them cramped. Exactly. Very good. Yes, they would... <coughs> They would put them in a position where their muscles would be twisted or distorted so that they would cramp up. <clears throat> and, of course, you couldn't move once you were in that position, so there was no way to relieve the cramping. And, <clears throat> as you know, if you've ever had a severe cramp, it's extremely painful. And, <clears throat> you know, you just, it's excruciating so much. You, you, just, you don't know what you're going to do until you get that cramp loosened up. So <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> this is the kind of suffering that Jeremiah was exposed to by being placed in, uh, in these stocks. The people, like in the Prince of the Pauper, uh, people throw fruit at him. Is it, is that, did that happen too? People throw stuff at people? Or? Uh, we, we do know that they could be spat upon. I'm not so sure about throwing vegetables and fruit at them. But uh, it, it, it may have been. It, you're certainly right. It is true in uh, later uh, European history. They become a target. All right, now, where were these stocks? In the Upper Benjamin Gate. Where is the Upper Benjamin Gate? This is an interesting exercise in detective work. First of all, if you turn over to chapter 38, verse 1, which would be the easiest verse to locate. Well, I apologize that Some, somehow my uh, let's go back to 37, 13. Oh, I see the I see the problem. That should be 38, verse 7. OK. So make a correction there on your outline, 38 verse 7. But if you have 37, 13, because I suggested you turn there, 
Uh, <clears throat> notice that uh, the statement is while he was at the gate of Benjamin, which is also the reference in 38.7, Evid Melech, the king, was sitting at the gate of Benjamin. Now, is this upper Benjamin gate in chapter 20, verse 2, the same as the gate of Benjamin? No, it is not. <clears throat> Where was the gate of Benjamin? <clears throat> well, if we imagine the large perimeter of the wall of Jerusalem <clears throat> as so, the gate of Benjamin was a gate which faced the territory of Benjamin, which was north or perhaps northeast. So the wall, <clears throat> the, the, the uh, gate... <clears throat> In the wall is perhaps here or over here, Gate of Benjamin. It's a guess because nobody knows exactly where it is. It hasn't been excavated, hasn't been discovered. And so it's, a, it's only a hypothesis of where the Benjamin Gate may have been. <clears throat> but what about this upper Gate of Benjamin? What is it? Well, let's do our detective work. We do have some references in... Uh, <clears throat> The Old Testament, which gives us some clues. Let's begin with first, 2 Kings 15.35. 2 Kings 15.35. And whoever has it, if they'll read it for us when they get there. 2 Kings 15, verse 35. Oh, 2 Kings, sorry, sorry. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burned, burned incense there. Jotham rebuilt the upper gate of the temple of the Lord. All right, now notice here that this upper gate is associated with the temple of the Lord. The suggestion is that this is the upper Benjamin gate of Jeremiah 20, verse 2. So we know that it is contiguous or it is a gate in a wall to the house of the Lord. So it's part of an entrance gate to the temple. All right, now in Ezekiel chapter 9. If we turn to Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 2. And once again, the first person that has it, read it. We only need to read the first clause to the first comma. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north. All right, now we have the direction of the upper gate. We know what direction it is. It's a northern gate to the temple. And the final passage is in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 5. This is the most interesting and challenging verse with respect to the location of this gate. <clears throat> and once again, whoever has it first... <clears throat> Go ahead and read out the whole verse. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new court. In the front of the new court. All right, now let's put this all together. <clears throat> we have a gate to the temple of the Lord. The temple in Jerusalem is on the northeast side. So <clears throat> let's draw a little box, and let's put the temple precinct inside the little box. <clears throat> All right? <clears throat> now let's suggest that this is the inner court, <clears throat> which would have been a wall <clears throat> around the temple. 
All right, now, is this upper gate in this inner court? No, it is not. This new court, which was mentioned in Second Chronicles chapter 20, is another court which is built around the temple so that we have an inner court and an outer court to the temple. This upper Benjamin gate is on the north side. So in this outer court, and I'm going to arbitrarily put a gate in in the inner court as well. In this outer court, uh, the king can stand before this gate. In other words, he can stand perhaps here or right in this area between the outer and inner court facing this upper gate of Benjamin. That is pointing north towards the territory of Benjamin. That's the best suggestion as to where this gate was, that it is actually part of the outer court gate to the temple that was built sometime during or before the the reign of King Jehoshaphat. And from then on, all the way down to Herod's temple, there was an inner and outer court to the temple of the Lord. Any questions about that? So you don't think it's, a, it's not a gate that goes out of the city? No, it does not go out of the city. Okay. Remember that this is the gate of the city here, okay? And here is the what became the new court or the gate to the outer court of the temple, which surrounded a previous gate. So this is a new court, then there was an old court. And this is the old court or what became the inner court. And consequently, it's been built subsequently to Solomon building the temple with its court. And it, and, it, and it looks out into the precincts of the city around about it. But it's still short of the wall of Jerusalem, the whole city wall. OK, now you want to surround your teeth with some goodies. All right, now, on page two of your outline, Jeremiah reacts to the act of humiliation in verse three of chapter 20 by giving Pasher a Hebrew name. And you see it written there at the end of the third verse, pronounced Megor, Missaviv. Megor Misseviv, which means terror on every side. And you'll notice that that is repeated in verse 4 as a pun upon Pasher's new name, which raises an interesting reflection upon name change in the Bible. For instance, Saul of Tarsus receives a new name. What's his new name? Lisa? Paul. Paul of? It's Saul of Tarsus and Paul of? Where did he become Paul? He was converted on what road? On the Damascus Road. So we could say Paul of Damascus. All right, so Paul receives a new name at the time of his conversion. How about Simon Barjona? 
What's the other name for that person? Mary Lou, do you know? Terry? Art? Peter. Peter. That's Simon Peter. He gets a name change in Matthew 16. And finally, Jacob receives a name change. What's his new name? Terry? Israel. Israel. All right. Now, in these cases, Saul, Simon, Barjona, and Jacob, the change of name is coincident with a change of nature. And the name change is indicative of the Lord's benediction. Obviously, Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the Christian. Saul the Jew becomes Paul the Christian. Change of nature. He is blessed of the Lord. He's even blessed by the Lord to see the risen Lord Jesus Christ right in front of his eyes. Simon Barjona, Simon's nature is changed. He's called Peter. He's called the rock because his confession is the rock of the church. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jacob is called Israel because the deceiver is no longer a deceiver. He has wrestled with God and prevailed. Actually, God has wrestled with him and prevailed because God has allowed him to wrestle. So he's now a prince with God. But what about Pasher? His name change is a sign of God's benediction. Scott? God's malediction. The false prophet abuses the true prophet, and the true prophet does what? He curses the false prophet. The name change here is a testimony to the malediction that hangs over Pasher. So we ask, as we characterize Pasher, in the light of this name change now, does Pasher love God? No, he does not. He despises the word of God, and he treats God's servant with despite. Does Pasher love the city of Jerusalem? No, he does not. He rejects the judgment predicted on the city which will condemn it, destroy it, and raise it to the ground. The only way Jerusalem would have been saved is if she would have surrendered, if she would have heeded Jeremiah's prophecy and surrendered to Babylon. You see, refusing to surrender destroys the city. You don't love a people if you destroy them. Does Pasher love the temple of the Lord? No, he presumes upon the temple of the Lord like a rabbit's foot. He's very much like that group in Jeremiah's sermon in chapter 7, verse 4, which swears by the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is these, meaning that they are resting upon the presumption that nothing can happen to them. They are inviolable. But that is not a love of the temple of the Lord. That is the love of a talisman, a rabbit's foot, a magic structure. And finally, does Pasher love God's prophet, Jeremiah? He certainly does not. He abuses him. He beats him. He strikes him and humiliates him. The one who tells the truth, Pasher vilifies as a liar. And he persecutes him. The one who warns of the judgment to come 
pastor oppresses and declares that there is a glorious future for the nation through the international scene, even though that international scene is belligerent, militant, and violent. One warns of potential collapse of the capital city. Pasher brands that one a pessimist, a man of no forward vision and unpatriotic. Pasher embraces the gods of the nations, seeking the assistance of divine forces from the religious energy of multinational and multicultural deities, all the while despising the supernatural power and revelation of the triune God. And Pasher is intolerant. Though he tolerates idolatry, tolerates wealth in treasures for his cronies, notice verse 5, tolerates multinationalism with enemies of the nation and a make peace, not war agenda, which hypocritically allows him to beat, oppress, and abuse another human being with physical violence. Beware of the peacemongers who destroy property, abuse peaceful citizens, and resort to physical violence as a provocation so as to promote their perverse definition of peace. And that applies to the Occupy Wall Street radicals. Don't tell me that you believe in peace when you provoke confrontation, violence, abuse, and destruction of private property. You are a liar and a hypocrite. And God will bring every work into judgment. Do not be deceived by this facade of political correctness. It is deceit. It is the power of a lie. And if it is not changed, it will destroy any nation. Pasher was truly politically correct. Now, Jeremiah's confession follows in verses 7 to 18. This is the final confession of Jeremiah, and we have to come to grips with the pattern or the structure of this last of his complaints. I have lined it out in terms of the symmetry or parallel words or terms. You will notice that verse 7 contains the word prevail, as does the word verse 10. We therefore can bracket the sections 7, 8, 9, and 10. That is a unit of its own. <clears throat> then in verses 11, 12, and 13, we have the name of the Lord repeated in each verse and doubled in the last verse. That is peculiar to that section, and so there is a unit between 11 and 13. And finally, verses 14 to 18 contain a reflection on the day of Jeremiah's birth. 
He talks about the cursing of the day in which he was born. And he asks in verse 18 why he was brought forth or why he was born from the womb. So there's a symmetry in the birth motif surrounding verses 14 through 18. Now, if we line out the paradigm of the units, we've drawn a unit bracket around 7 and 10 in which Jeremiah directs his invective at God. Because in those four verses, he regards God as against him. You have deceived me and I was deceived. You have overcome me and made me a laughing stock. Notice his invective is directed at God and against God because he thinks God is against him. That is true in verses 14 to 18 as well. <clears throat> when he curses the day of his birth, he is directing his curse at God bringing him to life. Here he sees God against him again. And it would have been better if his womb, his mother's womb had been his grave. That is more invective, which is very similar to the invective of Job when he curses the day of his birth. All right, so we have two sections of this final complaint of Jeremiah in chapter 20, in which he directs his ire against God. But sandwiched in between, in between those two outer limits in which he thinks God is against him, what does he say in verse 11? The Lord is with me. Verse 13, praise the Lord, he has delivered the soul of the needy. The Lord, verse 11, is like a dread champion. Verse 12, Lord, let us test the righteous. In this middle portion of this final complaint, Jeremiah resolves the tension at the center of the sandwich. He places the resolution of the Emmanuel promise, the Emmanuel presence of God, God with me in the center of the sandwich. Do not walk away from this last confession of Jeremiah, believing that he did not in some way resolve his accusations against God. He frames his narrative so as to place at the center of the structure the resolution, God with me, my deliverer, hallelujah, praise the Lord. All right, so this final confession is not a negative confession. It is a negative confession that is resolved. And the sandwich structure shows you the center of the resolution. He forces it, he squeezes the resolution to draw your attention to the center of, of his uh, confidence, his faith, his trust, his praise, his glorying in the Lord who delivered his needy soul. Well, then why? Why the ire against God? We ask the question in order to answer it. 
has the sting of humiliation, the sting of abuse, the pain and sting of flogging and sneering, have they all stuck? Has the false prophet label stuck on Jeremiah? Is the true prophet shamed by the reversal? He in the stocks, the rogue spokesman free as a bird. Is Jeremiah a bit embittered by the experience, not to mention bruised and bloodied, ridiculed, debased, rejected? Is Jeremiah a bit embittered by his experience? Has the fire in his soul begun to burn against his sinless commissioner instead of against those who perpetrate sins of commission? Does he believe his detractors who cry out against him, where is the word of the Lord? Chapter 17, verse 15. And does he therefore cry out, your word, O Lord, has deceived me and made me a laughing stock? Chapter 20, verse 7. Does he believe the denunciations? Does he believe the denunciations which have been hurled at him? Denounce him. Denounce him. Notice verse 10 of chapter 20. Silence him. Verse 18 of chapter 18. Does he believe that he can no longer endure it? Chapter 20, verse 9. Has Jeremiah accepted the deception accusation his enemies have launched against him? Chapter 20, verse 10. Has he accepted it so that he mirrors He echoes the same in charging the Lord with deception. Chapter 20, verse 7. As the claim of his adversaries that they will prevail over him. Chapter 20, verse 10. Has the claim of his adversaries become mirrored in God as his adversary. You have overcome me, O Lord, and prevailed. Verse 7, chapter 20. You see the pathos of this man's soul. You see the existential abyss that he's plunged into. Do you see this cacophony of cross purposes that he's faced to come to grips with? Has the reversal of abject degradation and execration caused Jeremiah to flip out, to flip flop? To feel the pang of being a false prophet. Even as he is dismissed and brutalized as a false prophet. Is Jeremiah in this last confession, this final complaint. Is Jeremiah tempted to believe the press notices posted by his attackers. 
Headline, Jerusalem Post and Telegraph, Jeremiah of Anathoth, false prophet and a Keller photo with his body blocked in stocks, bloodied and beaten from his scourging, openly set forth to the public disgrace, a disgrace so demeaning, so painful, so piercing that the fire within boils over with anger. Anger directed against the Lord. Is Jeremiah bewildered? Blindsided? Nonplussed? Taken aback? Brought up short? So much so that the final line in this, his final lament, begins with why, verse 18. Why? And the echo of that interrogative re-echoes down through the history of redemption. Oh, Lord, why? Why, oh, Lord? Echoes and re-echoes from a stark hilltop outside of Jerusalem. Echoes and re-echoes one last time in the history of redemption from Golgotha's Calvary. One last why in the history of of redemption. Only the Jeremiah who utters this interrogative will not cry out of bitterness, nor will his humiliation be suggestive that his heavenly Father has deceived him. His why cry will be a cry of dereliction. Not God with him, but God against him. As if the sandwich has been replayed. As if the sandwich has been replayed and he is squeezed between the enemies prevailing over him while the day of his birth has resulted in sorrow, affliction, and a grave. Yes, scatological Jeremiah bewails his why from the place of shame. Set forth as a public display of humiliation. The site in which he is openly exhibited as a criminal. This eschatological Jeremiah bears the shame Endures the sting, submits to the beating, but is never, never embittered by it, pleading, praying for his enemies, his persecutors, his murderers. The fire in the soul of this eschatological Jeremiah is the flame 
of love. The all-engulfing inferno of passion and affection for the righteousness of God and a burning love for the unrighteous. A people bound up, helpless, shamed and degraded, who have no righteousness, who have no lover other than the beloved and righteous crucified eschatological Jeremiah. And when his detractors, when the detractors of this eschatological Jeremiah sneer and spit and beat and whip and tack and nail, silencing him, he never says a mumbling word. He never says a mumbling word. His self Silence, deafening their malice with mute majesty, sealing their lips as he absorbs their obloquy, leaving them speechless, excuseless, leaving them without excuse before the Lord of glory. No, the charges interiorized by the protological Jeremiah have not been incarnated by the eschatological Jeremiah so as he curses the day of his birth. So as he charges his Lord with deception. So as to mirror the cry, why? As if he is bewildered, bewildered by the injustice heaped upon him. No, no. The eschatological Jeremiah assumed the curses, took on the charges, bore the injustices, took on all the whys of the history of redemption. He took them unto himself without a mumbling word so that those who have been humiliated in him may feel his passion. Those who have been beaten and persecuted in him may experience conformity unto the measure of his sufferings. Those who have been overwhelmed by abuse and false accusation in him may existentialize his crucifixion by being crucified together with him. So that those who wonder if they are in fact truly false prophets, may in Christ sense that the word of the Lord burns within them, even as the word of God written is sealed, seared, burned upon their souls by the union of passionate intimacy With the word of God living. And in that union. With the eschatological Jeremiah. They. Who sometimes doubt whether they're true prophets. 
they who sometimes succumb to the temptation to think themselves false prophets. In union with the eschatological Jeremiah, they live. They die to themselves. They burn within with the word of the Lord. They are inflamed with God the word. They are joined to the Jeremiah who forever has borne their shame and carried their humiliation to glory, to heaven, to eternity, and has changed their shame into glory, has changed their doubts into assurance has turned their humiliation to exaltation, their sorrow to singing, their sadness to praise, their petulancy to doxology, their death to life, life everlasting, in and through the eschatological Jeremiah, who is Lord with them, Emmanuel, as he was Lord with Jeremiah, Emmanuel. Father, we thank you for this powerful confession and chapter in the career of your prophet. Understanding the depths of his own agony. Realizing the frailty of his own nature. Understanding that he is pressed down into the measure of Christ's own passion and suffering before the time but also confessing, O Lord, as he would himself have confessed, who is sufficient for these things. Surely he was not God. Surely he could not go to a gibbet. Surely he could not be humiliated and take away an eternity of humiliation. Surely he knew. There had to be one greater, one as God himself would pass through the valley of affliction, persecution, humiliation, and abuse that he himself passed through. And who, although that one would ask why, there would in that question come an everlasting answer. Satisfaction for abuse and sin and humiliation. Salvation from persecution and degradation. And a heaven of joy to sing and praise the Lord. Oh, great God, And Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
by the spirit of thy risen son, press us down into the passion of Jeremiah. That we may be pressed down in the passion of Jeremiah's Lord. That Lord Jesus who came to do what Jeremiah could never do. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Do you have any questions? Chapter 21 next week. <clears throat> yes, Scott. I mean, I have a note in my Bible as to what this, uh, I don't know if it's correct, terror on every side. That's what Mike says. I didn't know if you gave the translation. Yes, I did. I mentioned it. It reappears in verse 5. You'll notice that the root or the lemma is referred to the pastor as being a terror to himself. Another thing, when you first talked about Jeremiah uh, taking upon himself this identity of false prophet, perhaps, I was thinking maybe you had in mind some sense of transference uh, where you know, there's a transference of guilt upon the one suffering, maybe that he's identified in some way with this accusation, not in a way that he, you know, in a way that he shouldn't have, but maybe there, there's a way that he uh, was properly taking upon himself an identification with the nations and the, and the false prophets and the people, but you don't see that necessarily. No, I think, I think this language, in, particularly in the first section, verses 7 to 10, is, uh, is, is the language of an embittered, disappointed prophet. Like Jonah running away from the commission of God because he's spent his breath for years preaching to Israel and nobody's repented and now God wants to send him off to this foreign country and pagan Nineveh and you know why, why should I do that I've been spending all my life for naught and I, I think that the story here of Pasher's reverse role okay the, the, the flip issue of Pasher regarding himself as a true prophet and Jeremiah the false I think that's the narrative paradigm for why this confession is here. Jeremiah is reacting to the accusation because he's stung by it. It's as if he is himself the false prophet, as if he has bought the accusation. And now his reaction to God is, you commissioned me to be the one who would be truly your prophet. And here I am, I'm a false prophet because nobody listens to me. They all denounce me. They say, where is the word of the Lord? The emptiness, you see, the lack of fruition. And then the humiliation, the public display, the public shame. Is there an irony here in that he's just renamed Pasher with this cursed name and now he's saying, I'm the one that's cursed? Yes, yes. I think that the confession is a reflection upon the whole narrative, which is the reason that the redemptive section of the confession is sandwiched in between the Emmanuel section in verses 11 to 13. So in other words, it's not the final word, but we have to come to grips with the twofold or the symmetrical double negative section to this confession. This is the, this is the honest declaration of a soul in anguish, bewildered, blindsided, 
you know, completely almost turned upside down, flipped around, wondering if, well, am I in fact what these detractors say I am? A false prophet who doesn't bring the word of the Lord, that I should be denounced. And when you say this is his last word, is this the last narrative words that we have from Jeremiah in the book then? No, no, but it is the last confession. It's the last complaint. It's the last lament. So there are no further uh, complaint narrative, complaint dialogues or complaint uh, sections uh, beyond chapter 20. So is there any reversal of this complaint then for Jeremiah himself? Yes, chapter 23 and then chapter 31 to 33. When we get to the heart of a full-blown eschatology. But you see, the seeds are here. And we've noticed that from chapter 2 on. The seeds of the, eschat- of the eschatology of Jeremiah are in these earlier chapters. In fact, it's more dramatically there than just the explicit proof text. I'm more persuaded that there's an eschatological drama built into almost every part of this book, not just chapter 23 and 31 to 33. The more I dig into it, the more I realize, you see, this amazing conformity of Jeremiah to Christ and Christ being thought to be Jeremiah in Matthew 16, 14. This prophet about whom we know so much, more than any other canonical prophet. We know more about his story. Why? Because his story is a virtual anticipation of the story of the eschatological Jeremiah. And the bitterness, you see, the the humiliation that turns to bitterness, we have to come to grips with that. Because that's the temptation of every true prophet of God, every true servant of the word of God. The bitterness of, of, why don't they listen? Why don't they come? See, we have to deal with it. Jeremiah does. Paul himself does. Because he has to be conformed to the measure of Christ's suffering. All right, now that's my suggestion. That's my thought about what's happening in the drama here. I'm not claiming infallibility for anything I say, but this is, this is something that impresses me as it's part of the whole issue of theodicy throughout the Bible, including Job and the, and the prophets, I mean the psalmists, who say, why do the wicked prosper, etc. So you see a justification of God in this book? Yes, yes, yes. It's not merely the passion of Christ loving his people to go to the cross. It's Christ loving the justice of God in the face of injustice, which includes all the injustices which are hurled against Jeremiah, all the injustices which he endures. There, there is a sense of God overcoming his enemies and his justi- justifying his name? Yes. Yes. Yes, I, I think that's one of the reasons that he spared the destruction of the city. Not the only reason, but I think that's one of the reasons that Jeremiah is spared. There's no record of his death. That doesn't mean that he's assumed into heaven. I'm not suggesting that, but there's no record of his death. In other words, he goes out of the book alive. Almost like he's eternally alive as you close the book. Vindicated forever as the true servant prophet of the Lord. This this man is amazing. He is amazing. You know, the fact, the fact that it's taken me almost 50 years to get to this guy. 
this is wonderful stuff. I mean, my, my soul just rejoices. 